Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy-Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers, and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like "Where did your band name come from?" and "Who's your favorite Friends character?" We're asking questions like "Why did your marriage fail?" "Where does love come from?" "Is God real?" It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passion. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. Well, you know, I think the biggest thing that I push back against with my students is what William James called medical materialism and this kind of impulse that I run up against in religious studies to kind of reduce all of religion to just, well, our ancestors were just really, really dumb and didn't understand weather or sickness or anything like that. And I always have to say, you know, our ancestors had as much raw intelligence as, as you do. And in a lot of ways, they probably understood these things better than you do because they were actually in control of their own food supply. So things like climate and, and, and weather and things like that, they were sort of more uh, attuned to. And so once we get past those kind of lazy, just, well, these people didn't understand disease, they didn't understand this and that, then we can begin to do more serious work, kind of trying to figure out why these beliefs and practices take the form that they do and, and what kind of functions they serve um, within um, the the society. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long, and I am here with Joseph Laycock again. Joseph, you are officially the most interviewed guest on Sacred Tension now. You've been here. This is your third time on the show. It's quite an honor. You're just a fascinating person. You study all the things that I find most interesting in life, in the world. So previous shows that we've done together, we did one on the Satanic Panic and Dungeons and Dragons, and then we did one on cults and new religious movements. So today we're going to talk about another field of study for you, and that is demonic possession. And so there's actually a really funny like Twitter backstory here about this episode because a day or two ago, I posted, uh, I, I uh, tweeted out that I'm interviewing an expert in demon possession and didn't clarify what that meant. And people fucking lost their shit and thought I was talking to an exorcist and people just freaked out and were like, you do know demons don't exist, right? And so I had like the hardcore atheists going after me and going after you. And then on the other hand, I had Christians who were like, you do realize how abusive exorcism is, right? And I was like, yes, yes, I did. And so I had to like go in and clean up the mess after the fact. So it hit a nerve. A lot of people responded and it really struck this really, really raw nerve in a lot of my listeners. And I found it, I found that very, very interesting. So before we get started, just tell us some about yourself and your, and your field of study. Well, so I, uh, I'm a professor of religious studies and my specialization is, is really American religion. And my interest in possession and exorcism really came about when I was uh, reading William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist, right, written in 1971. 
And some of your listeners may know um, that this is a this is based on a true story, uh, an actual exorcism that occurred in uh, in 1949. But what interested me more was that William Peter Blatty was kind of a, a Catholic with doubts that maybe this is all just nonsense, and I've been going mm. to church for for no reason. And so he really wanted this story to be true because if there really was a demonic possession, then that meant God was real also. So I was kind of interested in looking at at the end of the 1960s, the beginning of the 1970s, as a moment when everyone believed religion was going to die, it was going to be replaced by science, and this kind of renewed fascination with exorcism, which which previously to that, we had kind of pat ourselves on the back of, you know, we're so much smarter than those dumb medieval people who believed in exorcism. And now, of course, um, you know, decades after the exorcist movie in 1973, Exorcism is probably bigger than it's ever been in American history right now. Yes. Um, so I think this is something that needs to be studied more, and there's not a lot of people um, uh, doing that. That's fascinating. I I think one of the reasons why everyone on Twitter freaked out was because there's this assumption that it isn't a field of study, that it's just for superstitious people or for religious people, and that it isn't a valid field of study. Well, I encounter this attitude all the time, whether it's exorcism or, or Satanism or anything spooky. And it doesn't make any sense to me because if you really believe something is dangerous, and I mean, some of these. Yes, exactly. Some of these uh, uh, concerns about, say, um, you know, exercising your gay teenager and, and cases where people are really abused, not just emotionally, but physically, that's that's exactly why it has to be studied, yes. right? That's why we should be uh, analyzing this and, and, and writing papers about it and, and uh, contextualizing it. Yeah. So I have a personal fascination in this subject. I I make a rule to not t really talk about my family online, but I was raised basically by a Protestant exorcist, my, my dad. And I was raised with this unshakable belief in the demonic world. One of the most influential books on my life, because it is one of the most influential books on my family, is Hostage to the Devil by Malachi Martin. And so, you know, I, I attended deliverance—they never called it exorcisms, they called it deliverance ministry. And, and so I attended— I, re I remember attending these things from a very, very, very young age. I mean, middle school, watching these things go down. And then later, when I discovered that I am gay, I was subject to these things, not necessarily within my own family, but within the, my broader Christian culture. And that really messed me up. I have seen, you know, and so I, I grew up in the inner healing, for, for people who don't know, who have no clue what I'm talking about, inner healing being the Christian practice of of uh, healing traumatic wounds, emotional wounds and traumas through prayer. So I grew up in the inner healing, demon possession, exorcism, deliverance culture, subculture, I guess you could say. And now, you know, now that I'm an adult, now that I'm 30 years old and I've kind of gone through this deconstruction process of my faith, now I'm looking back on all that and just being like, what the fuck? happened. <laughs> what the hell happened? So that is my personal interest in this. It, it's been a big part of my life. I was raised with this. So 
I don't even know. I don't even know where I want to start. How so? Exorcism, spirit possession, and exorcism is kind of a, a ubiquitous thing in culture uh, and through the ages. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Sure. So I, I teach a class on uh, on um, demonology and, and possession and exorcism in the Honors College here at Texas State. And one thing we know from anthropology is that spirit possession occurs in basically all cultures. Hmm. And this is partly comes down to definition. So, for example, if you go to a Pentecostal church and everyone is being moved by the spirit and speaking in tongues, they wouldn't call that possession. But an anthropologist would say, well, there's a spirit. It goes into you. It makes you do things. It controls your actions. That That is possession. Um, but in most cultures, possession is more neutral. It could be good or bad. Hmm. Um, and it's really only bad when you don't have any control over it. Um, but in a lot of traditional cultures, you will have people like shamans and oracles who are, in fact, expected to get possessed by by spirits or by gods. And that's a resource uh, for the whole community. Christianity is a little bit unique um, in this assumption that um, possession is always by demons. Possession is always mm. something that has to be uh, stopped. Other cultures uh, tend to be a little bit more nuanced about uh, whether or not this is good, bad, or maybe the possession could be good in the future, but it's it's not really happening yet in a way that's productive. So this person might need you know some coaching and how to control these these experiences. What do you think? Okay, so this is a big question, and I'm sure we could talk about it for like five hours. But but what do you think is behind the human experience of possession? When people say that they have experienced possession, I tend to believe that they have experienced something. I I don't think that they're lying, and I don't think that they are necessarily delusional in the same way that when I spoke in tongues, you know, growing up, my brain really, my it's, it's like the language center of my brain did in fact shut down and it did in fact feel like there was this energy and warmth and power speaking through me from outside of me. That was my real experience. Whether that was what actually happened, of course, is the other story. And so I, I tend to believe people when they say that they have experienced something. Uh, but what is it do you think that people are experiencing? Well, you know, I'm I'm not sure everyone's experiencing the same thing, right? Mm. Um, some people are are probably lying. You know, I, I had a student, uh, and we were studying the Salem witch trials, and she notices one of these girls. Her dad says, "Quit being bewitched, or I'll, or I'll, I'll smack you," and she stops. Right? Which, <laughs> this, this was under her conscious control, right? Now, right. I'm not saying offices are like that, but it, it could happen. Um, there is a definitely a cultural element to this as well. I think that this is a this is a learned behavior, whether or not yes. people have control over it. So, for example, Brian Levac is a, a scholar at UT Austin. He's a foremost expert on uh, possession and witchcraft in early modern Europe. Oh, I should and talk to him just, as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I can. I'll give you. The oh, order. that would be awesome. Yeah. But but he noticed that um, Catholics and Protestants got possessed differently, right? Mm. So possessed Catholics, you know, wouldn't want to be around holy water and wouldn't want to what touch crosses and things. Possessed Protestants had no problem with that, but they said, no, no, the word of the Bible is too powerful, right? Stop stop reading the Bible at, at me. Um, and he didn't think that these people were, were faking this behavior consciously, but he thought that this was a sort of role, that being a demoniac is something that they kind of learned about from their culture and that this role kind of um, kicked in. Um, and, and you mentioned speaking in tongues. There was an anthropologist named... Um, Felicitas Goodman, she wrote a book called What About Demons? And some of her data, she was very interested in glossolalia, the phenomenon 
phenomena of, of Pentecostal speaking in tongues. And she did cite uh, brain scans of people speaking in tongues, and which reveals there is something very interesting going on in their in their brain while they're doing yes. this. And what all this leaves out is, well, could demons actually be real? Could there be something that we don't really understand that's occurring in at least some of these cases? And as far as that question, I, I um, defer to something called uh, epistemological modesty. <laughs> Right. right. Epistemology, yes. of course, is the, the, how we know what's real. Um, so, you know, especially when I teach my class here in Central Texas, I have a whole range of kind of hardened atheists to evangelicals who kind of grew up with these traditions. And I never, you know, put the students in a hard position of saying, do demons exist or not exist? To me, that's not kind of the most interesting question for us to be studying. Right. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you're you kind of take a sociological approach and you're really interested in how in how people experience this and what happens within cultures and communities is that right that that's right because i do think that there are historic patterns that that come up right so for example, if you read the the Hebrew Bible, there's really almost no spirit possession at all in there. No one in the Hebrew Bible is getting possessed by demons. That's yeah, and, that's right. Well, I mean, I could think of like the one example of Saul when he, but mm-hmm. that yeah, but that's like the only example. And then and, and those evil and, spirits from the Lord, God is making exactly. Evil. And then David would play the harp and and would appease his his spirits or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There are a few cases like that, but then suddenly, if you read the New Testament, everyone's possessed by demons. There's demons everywhere. Right. The, the planet is besieged by right. these, these spirits. Um, and I, you know, thinking historically, it seems that something must have changed because presumably there were always as many people in that part of the world who were mentally ill or who had Tourette syndrome or, or whatever. So there's, I think that something must have happened in the culture for people to see these, these symptoms and interpret them in this particular way. Similarly, in Christian Europe, we don't see a lot of possession and exorcism until uh, the Protestant Reformation. And suddenly you have people fighting over whose church is the best and whose church is the most powerful and the most authentic. And suddenly there's possessed people everywhere. Mm. Um, and so I, I think that there is a lot, more, you know, my students often come with the assumption of, well, ancient people just didn't understand mental illness. And that's that's all this is. Uh, there were people as early as the fourth century BC, there were Greek physicians saying, guys, this isn't spirits. This is all just a disease. Huh. Of, of the mind. That, that's an old idea. What I think huh. has happened is different kind of soci- sociological and kind of political situations tend to, you know, kind of amp up the, the amount of exorcism going on in, in a culture. And we might actually be going through a similar cycle uh, uh, right now with, with a big resurgence in exorcism and, and deliverance ministry. Okay, that's fascinating. So the idea being that when there is greater social tension than, you know, than demon possession and, and or the experience of demon possession starts to ramp up. Is it true? Okay, something that is like at the beginning of all these demonic possession horror movies right now is the Vatican has increased their <laughs> their exorcists to whatever number. You know, exorcisms are in demand. You know, I can't, you know, I don't know how many movies off the top of my head start with that or scary YouTube videos or whatever. So is that true? I know that there was the the book The Right that was about that. But so so do you think this rise first of all is that is the Vatican actually collecting more exorcists and two is that because there are these social conflicts that are rising and people are somehow internalizing that as demonic possession. 
So that's a that's a complicated question. Um, okay. but I mean, on the the most basic level, yes, that's true. Okay. Um, there is a group called the International Association of Exorcists, and they formed um, it, it, really in the 1990s. Um, and I don't think that they would have existed if the movie The Exorcist had not done so well. Um, I really right. Do think so the world. Right, so pop culture plays into this so much. And that's the other thing that came up in our conversation about done, about the satanic panic is just how much pop culture informs all of this. That, that's right. And, and the late Father Gabriel Amorth, who was one of the founders of the International Association of Exorcism, was also really interested in popular culture. And he would go to film festivals and comment mm-hmm. on screen. Of, of the exorcist. Um, and so for a while, this group was sort of lobbying the Vatican saying exorcism is really important. Why aren't you doing it more? And the Vatican was just sort of kind of patronizing them. And there was one incident where they showed up and they thought they would get an audience with the Pope and, and they didn't. Mm. Uh, and, and so lately they've been they've been taken a little bit more seriously and they've been given a little bit more kind of inclusion into what's going on in the Vatican. And I think that the reason for this is that conservative Catholics are more interested in exorcism than progressive Catholics. Pope Francis has done a lot of things that are very exciting for progressive Catholics and are very disturbing to conservative Catholics. Yes. I think that Pope Francis sees this as kind of this balancing act and thinks, I can I can throw a bone to the exorcists and get the conservatives back on my side. And the mm. progressives won't really be upset. So that that may sound overly cynical, but I feel like that is kind of the the political calculus that leads to kind of this this increase in mm. exorcism training in, in the Vatican. That's fascinating. And you mentioned in the previous show that you're that you are Catholic. That so you're part of the Catholic tradition. Is, yeah, and it's okay. a big tradition. And, and yes, this is it is that, that people don't understand is there's there's many many ways to to be Catholic, many different traditions with within Catholicism. And so I was, you know, my 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 parents are my 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 mother's Catholic. That's where I get my Catholicism from, and she's also a sociologist. And so <laughs> I was always raised with this idea of well, the church teaches that exorcism is real, but it, it didn't happen to you, and it didn't happen to anybody you know. <laughs> um, and yeah. that's kind of a traditional view. It, it wasn't really until after uh, the Exorcist film came out that people began kind of going back to this and thinking, well, how do we know it's not real? How do we know my neighbor isn't really possessed? Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, I've been seeing like more and more articles from major magazines and newspapers from, you know, psychologists who diagnose who quote unquote diagnosed demon possession or whatever. So it does seem to be on the rise. One of my one thing that came up on Twitter was the use of exorcism as a tool for abuse. And there are kind of two sides to this. I'm I, I wonder if there is a therapeutic aspect of demon possession. The author Andrew Solomon has a beautiful book about depression called The Noonday Demon, in which he goes and has an exorcism for his depression. And, uh, and and much more, not a Western exorcism, a much more uh, indigenous exorcism for his depression. And he said that it was actually kind of helpful. Uh, and so is there a therapeutic aspect of of exorcism? But then on the other hand, there is the literal demonization of the other, of the minorities. You know, one of the big things with the Satanic Temple is they own the title Satanist because, you know, to stand in solidarity with the minorities, with the outsiders who have been demonized, who have been, you know, who've been called children of demons, Jews, gays, people of color, et cetera, et cetera, the mentally disabled, whatnot. So there, so could you comment some on that? There are the therapy, are there potential therapeutic aspects of demon 
possession and deliverance. And then what are you, what's the more horrific side to it? The abusive side? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a potential for this to be to be therapeutic to in, in improve people's well being. It's also very, very uh, prone to abuse. <laughs> Right. Yes. Um, you know, one really great example of this, there's a there's a book called The Devils of Ladun by Aldous Huxley. Mm. And this is a famous case where an entire convent of, of nuns was possessed for months and months. And um, the, the exorcists were were basically uh, there was a lot of sexual undertones to where they were, you know, tying up these possessed nuns and things Goodness. sort of got. Yeah. And, and, you know, finding things that the demons had put in their bodily cavities. And, uh-huh. and, and, and of course, all of this seem to just be kind of training them to continue behaving this way. In fact, at one point, a doctor inspected the nuns and said, well, you know, they've never been in such excellent physical shape. And that's because all day the nuns were, you know, cavorting around and doing handstands and, you know, all the kind of things that you do to show people that you're, you're, you're possessed. Yes. Um, and, and so the mother superior, who seems to have kind of started a lot of this, um, seemed to in some ways be enjoying the attention. And she was replaced um, with another exorcist named Father Surin. And every time she would say, you know, I feel the demons are getting really strong. Why don't you tie me up and whip me? You know. <laughs> which is what they had been doing before. And Father Sermon would say, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're just, I want you to go to your room and be quiet and kind of reflect on your thoughts and was sort of teaching her this tradition of kind of, you know, internal prayer. And she, uh-huh. she and, and there were, you can almost see her self-esteem shifting where the demons start saying things like, oh, the will of this nun is too powerful. I'm going to have to leave soon and stop possessing her. Um <laughs> And so you really get the sense of, wow, there's a right way and a wrong way to to do this. Yes. And just to turn the question on its head, I think that regular therapy also has a potential to be abusive. Right. right? Because it's the exact same power dynamic of you invite an expert to say, come look at me and you tell me what's what's wrong um, with with my thinking and with my um, uh, perceptions. So, so, I mean, it's a lot like therapy. I mean, with things like hypnosis, it's even, I think, structurally similar of kind of inducing an altered state of consciousness. Um, and I think in many cases it's destructive, but it, it's not universally so. There there must be something positive about it or, or it wouldn't survive as a cultural practice. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And, you know, of course, in the LGBT community, I think a lot of us just have these really horrific scars from the inner healing ministry subculture and from the deliverance ministry subculture. And so I think that's one reason why everyone responded so intensely on Twitter. It's because a lot of my listeners are LGBT and women and uh, or, you know, live with some form of mental illness. And it's just been used as such a horrific tool. One of the things that I always want to ask people who study this kind of stuff is there has there ever been anything that has come up? Have you ever read about anything or encountered a story or or encountered someone or something where you're just like, I have no clue what's going on. What the, I can't explain this. It, has there ever been anything in your own experience that has made you question whether there was actually a demon in that situation? Well, this is where the epistemological modesty comes in. And I have okay. to tell people, you know, I've, I've never attended an exorcism. I'm not an exorcist. Right. right? Uh, and there would be a lot of ethical issues if I saw one to kind of write down what I saw and, and what I think was, was, was happening. Yeah. So all we really have 
access to our stories. And, you know, some of these things I think we can we can explain away. For example, in the New Testament, you know, possession doesn't necessarily mean you're having an altered states of consciousness. There are people who have spirits who are making them unable to walk, and Jesus casts out those spirits and they, and they walk again. And so we would just say, right. they just couldn't be able to walk, right? That's, there's no evidence of, of a demon there. Yes. Uh, with other stories, though, it is really interesting. I mean, with the, with the case of um, this, this boy that the exorcist was, was based on, um, supposedly words are appearing on his skin, hmm. you know? And with a skeptical interpretation as well, when you get really stressed out, you can get a rash. Right. Well, that's true, but your rashes don't normally form words. <laughs> that's, that, so that strikes me as, as intellectually lazy, yes. right? And it could be something, there, there is a rational explanation, you know, maybe this kid had access to some kind of, you know, chemical or lie or something and was writing these on his body. Um, but to just say it was caused by stress seems very lazy to me. Another instance right. made me wonder, yes. there's, there's a very famous exorcism in the Philippines, uh, in the 50s that was recorded, and people basically said that they saw this woman kind of grappling with this invisible entity and sort of wrestling on the floor and, and screaming. And they said that when they kind of pulled her away, she opened her fist and there was this black fur in her fist. Mm. No one knew uh, where, where yeah. it came from. Now, I mean, there's all kinds of things that could happen, you know, sleight of hand or something like this, or it could just be a story someone made up. Um, but but questions like that, you know, stories like that are, are, are interesting. And I, I do think that uh, we shouldn't, ex if we're going to try to explain them away, we need to at least not do it in a very lazy fashion. Yeah, uh, I and, agree. And some scholars like, like Jeff Kripal at, at Rice, who has tenure, um, takes these, these ideas very seriously. And he's very interested in what he calls impossible stories and says that basically yes. religious has currently has no way of thinking about these so-called impossible stories. Mm. I could, I talk to him too. Do you know him? Oh yeah, no, he, he would be a great guy. To have let's, let's do that. I, I would love that. Send me a list of all these people after the show. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Cause this is also, this is the stuff that, you, you know, as I've been like polling my listeners for what they want to hear in the new year, like this is it. This is the kind of stuff that, that gets people going. I totally agree with everything you're saying. I love what, uh, Carrie Poppy says, who is someone I really admire. She's a comedian. She's a she's an investigator. She's and, and she's a skeptic and and very much a materialist, but but very kind and and very relational. And so while she probably ideologically kind of is more like Richard Dawkins, she's just very relational. And she has a podcast called Ono Ross and Carrie, and where she it just investigates fringy things, and it's wonderful and funny. And she does it with a lot of great and humor. But she talked about her own, in a TED talk, she talked about her own experience of believing her house was haunted when in fact it was carbon monoxide poisoning. And she 100% believed it. But then at one point she says, you know, a mystery is a mystery. A mystery is not a ghost. We don't know what it is. And, and we just need to be okay with not easily and lazily, I mean, this is my interpretation of that, we need to not lazily and easily just throw it away, but we also need to kind of resist the temptation to say, it's a ghost, <laughs> just obviously. We don't know what it is, and a mystery is a mystery, and we just need to be okay with that. There are a lot of things that I don't understand and that I'm okay with. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that the, the push towards exorcism is often about this desire that we can't explain everything and we can kind of reduce everything to the yes. simplest 
possible terms. Um, for example, of all the complexities that go with kind of realizing your teenager is gay, the laziest one is probably just, well, a demon made him that way. Exactly. We just have to, to, to get it out of him somehow. And, yeah. and so I, I wish that we were more comfortable with mystery. I think that maybe we would have a less destructive culture of exorcism if we were. Absolutely. So... I would like your thought on Malachi Martin. And so Malachi Martin, for listeners who don't know, he's just this bizarre figure, really, really, really interesting figure. He was a, uh, he was an, I believe he was an archaeologist for the, uh, for the, uh, what's it? Uh, for for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, he was an archaeologist for the Dead Sea Scrolls. He was, you know, I've heard, but I think this might be apocryphal, that he was the basis for the old priest and the exorcist, that he was the inspiration for him, though I, I don't think that that's true. I think that that's just a cultural connection that people made. But he wrote a book called uh, Hostage to the Devil, and this book terrified me. And it was, and it's, I actually have it on my shelf right now, and it is about the possession of five modern Americans and the demon possession and, and, and the uh, exorcists who dealt with these possessions. And it is terrifying. And it deals with, there are scenes of like melting bodies and fires and like cannibalism and, uh, and you know, terrifying satanic orgies and just like, and, sh and shit that's just like terrifying and overwhelming. And I'm wondering if you could talk about Malachi Martin some, because he's a fascinating person. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, an expert on him, but we did, um, you know, I, I edited an encyclopedia called the encyclopedia of spirit possession around the world. And there is an entry on Malachi Martin. Yeah. Uh, so as you said, he was um, in some ways brilliant, especially with languages. Yes, he right? was. He, he knew so many dead languages. Um, he was also a weird guy. He was basically defrocked at, at one point, and he had taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And uh, apparently part of his defrocking was they relieved him of two of his vows, but not his vow of chastity, which yes. is interesting. And I don't know. I don't know why they would. Do and he that. was. A, and he was a Jesuit. That's right. He he was a Jesuit. So after that, he began writing these books. And in addition to Hostage to the Devil, he wrote a lot of books, basically alleging that the Jesuits are part of this very dark conspiracy theory, right? To to yes. take over the world and to take over the Vatican. And I'm, I'm my sure... my partner is a former Jesuit, and so we love these conspiracies. <laughs> yeah. No. At, at my wedding, our officiant said, "And in the name of a you know dark secret society bent on world domination." known as the Jesuits, you know, I pronounce you. Really? Yeah. He said that? Yeah. Well, we, we had two ceremonies, so we were officially okay. already, so we could Okay, around, awesome. But, but, yeah, Beautiful. He, yeah, so, so it's well known, <laughs> and now that we have a Jesuit Pope for the first time, I'm sure all these conspiracy right. theories are, are coming out of the, the works. Um, anyways, Hostage the Devil came out in 1974, and William Peter, so one year after the Exorcist movie, and William Peter Blatty just said, um, this is a cheap knockoff of, yes. of my book. This is not good. Father Mary and the exorcist archaeologist was based on um, a, a different figure, a Jesuit archaeologist in, in France. I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Some of your listeners will, will know. He was very famous. And uh, he had this, this theory that he was interested in evolution because the, the Catholic Church teaches that, that evolution is, is, is real. Um, yes. Organic evolution is. Um, and he had this theory that we're sort of evolving closer to being able to understand God. And, and this, this actually comes up in The Exorcist 2 in, in, in the film. 
Anyways, uh, Blatty did not like Malachi Martin at all and thought mm. that this was cheap and thought that, you know, what he did was very kind of spiritual and very kind of about humans trying to understand God and trying to understand transcendent. And that Malachi Martin's was more kind of pornographic, right? With this very, yes, very much so. Well, um, very, you know, in a, in a very, some scholars call this the erotics of fear of saying, well, this is all really gross and scary, but I have to tell you about it because it's very important that you understand, you know, how, how, how bad evil is. And it's kind of these vignettes of different exorcisms that supposedly Malachi Martin's friends told him about. And I have to be honest, I, I think this is all made up. I don't think there's any basis for these stories. And it's describing, <laughs> you know, these elaborate parties where these Satanists, in Hollywood are having these huge parties and are doing cocaine and orgies and things like yes. that. All just seems to be someone's paranoid uh, fantasy, but it was a very, very influential book. In fact, the um, my copy of it has a blurb on the back from Harvey Cox, who's a very, very famous my theologian in school. Yes. So it was a significant book. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what's scary about these fantasies, especially when you're someone as brilliant and learned as Malachi Martin is that you can get away with just epic bullshit. <laughs> and I think that's what it is. If I were to write a blurb, it would say, you know, epic bullshit. On the <laughs> yes, me too. Um, I would love to see that edition. <laughs> uh, so in the culture at large, what would you what would you want to see change in terms of people's perspective on it? Like, what are what are the corrections that you want to make and how people see this topic? Well, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that I push back against with my students is what William James called medical materialism and mm. this kind of impulse that I run up against in religious studies to kind of reduce all of religion to just, well, our ancestors were just really, really dumb and right. didn't understand weather or sickness or anything like that. And I always have to say, you know, our, our ancestors had as much raw intelligence as, as you do. And in a lot of ways, yes. they probably understood these things better than you do because they were actually in control of their own food supply. So things like climate and, and, and weather and things like that, they were sort of more uh, attuned to. And so once we get past those kind of lazy, just, well, these people didn't understand disease, they didn't understand this and that, then we can begin to do more serious work, kind of trying to figure out why these beliefs and practices take the form that they do and, and what kind of functions they serve um, within um, the, the society. And, and I also think that there is a kind of uh, theological smugness here as well. You know, when what, the, the, the reason that the Catholics wrote the Ritual Romanum is that prior to that, um, as best we can tell, medieval Catholics just did exorcism however they wanted to. There was no written formula for it. Um, the Bible shows the apostles casting out demons, but doesn't say what exactly they do. Mm. And, and so the Protestants were the ones to say, you guys are just you're doing witchcraft, basically. You know, you have all these little villages and you have wise women and things like this, and people are doing all these strange traditions, exercise right. people. And so it was in response to that, the Catholic Church said, okay, here's the rite of exorcism. It was written in 1614. It must be done exactly this way. It must be done by, by a priest. Um, and so in, in a way, you know, we're, we're a Protestant country uh, culturally, and I think that that same kind of smugness still kind of fuels these attitudes towards exorcism of just anyone who does it is, you know, not not a real Christian or doesn't really understand uh, uh, religion, even from people who wouldn't call themselves Protestants. That kind of set of assumptions is, is, is still there, I think. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and so when you start to peel away some of the more lazy and simplistic explanations for demon possession and religious belief in general, 
like, you know, our ancestors are just stupid and we're just stupid if we still believe this, which which is something I, I still consider myself a really deeply religious person. You know, I'm and and I I'm a non-theist. I've been through this deconstruction process. I like to describe myself as a very hopeful and open materialist. Like, I really hope that there are demons and angels and ghosts and vampires and all that awesome shit out there. I hope that there's an afterlife. I hope that there's a God. Do I think it's likely? Probably not. You know, in the words of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's not impossible, just highly improbable, in my mind. But I still really, really want it to be true, (laughs) you know? And I'm okay with all of that Meanwhile, feeling this innate draw to religion and still considering myself a deeply religious person and in practice. And so that to me, my own experience is that religion... And, and mystical exp- oh and here's the other crazy thing i i don't necessarily believe in a personal god but i still experience him anyway <laughs> you know it's it's this i i still spontaneously speak in tongues sometimes and i know people who say the same thing who who still pray who still who still have religious iconography who still live in this who still live who still have religious mystical experience but who don't necessarily believe in a literal person named god and that and that's where i am it's this bizarre place and so what all that tells me is that beneath these really annoying simplistic answers of about why we have religion there's actually something much more complex there and so what do you think think are the more complex explanations for specifically why why demon possession emerge right well I, I think people if they have not read the novel the exorcist really should read it because william peter blatty had exactly the attitude you described of saying mm. i don't see any evidence that this stuff is real but i really hope that it is i, yes. I really was and and father Karras, who's a kind of a stand-in for him um does everything he can to test this and prove to himself it's not really a demon and at the end of the novel, when he gets possessed himself and jumps out the window, it describes him having this incredible look of peace on his face because he finally knows. Yes. For real, I had one inside me, right? Yes. Um, and, and Blatty actually ends up suggesting this very interesting theology where he says, well, if demons are real, then then God must be real. And and by extension, all of the terrible things happening in the world, the, the Vietnam War, all of this is actually testament to if this kind of evil exists, then then God must exist as, as well. Whether or not you find that philosophically persuasive, it has a certain kind of poetic quality to it of being able to see something greater in kind of the everyday banal horror uh, of of the world. I, I think so. After the Exorcist came out, this is when Deliverance Ministry really took off, and there was a book called Pigs in the Parlor that came out in 1973. Another staple of my childhood. <laughs> yeah, we actually have an autographed copy of that somehow here from, at Texas State. from Francis McNutt. That's right. Which is the most which is the most regrettable last name ever. Um, but but anyways, if if you look in that book, there is this table of kind of basically any any personality trait about someone that you don't like is actually a demon, right? So that would include like if they're part yes. of a different religion. <laughs> If even to things like if your wife won't bring you a sandwich when you ask that that could be a demon of willfulness. Really? Yeah, and 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 so this is oh really my interesting God. because because before 
the criteria for possession were really strict. Like you have to have supernatural strength and speak in languages you don't know and, and things like this. And, and then it just goes to really anybody can be possessed at, at any time. And and I think that um, the function that this is serving, I think, is to kind of answer these sort of why questions in a very kind of lazy way, but also a very satisfying and thorough way, right? I think for for people who really believe I can take out this chart and I can explain everything about everyone in terms of the demons possessing them, that could be a very satisfying way to see the world for them. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it's it's If I'm going up to that person and I'm saying, well, no, you should really think about things, you know, you should be like me and have epistemological modesty and question everything, you know, and then they ask me, why should I see the world that way? I don't really have much to tell them, right? Well, it's, it's, it's just better, <laughs> It's the, the demon thing is very, very satisfying. And so I think that it flares up at times like the European wars of religion, when you have people and they're looking for some kind of tool to assert their view of the world over and against a competing uh, set of values or a competing set of ideas. And so right now we're very politically polarized yes. and exorcism is really big. It's really taking off. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Mm. That's fascinating. In what in what context is it taking off? Is it? Uh, let me see if I can reframe that question a bit more. Is it? Is it just within like you know Catholic and evangelical Christian subcultures, or is this a more broad, like even more secularized people are are believing in possession and are having exorcisms? Well, so it used to be that you had Catholics and Protestants sort of accusing each other of being superstitious, and that that yes. made exorcism an embarrassment really until 1973 when the exorcism came out and then it flipped it started going the other way so people started going to the catholics to get an exorcism and they couldn't because you need a, approval from a bishop and so then things happened like ed and lorraine warren appeared and uh you know if your listeners have seen the movie the conjuring that was a very romantic biopic of that's those a two. that's a hagiography of right. ed and lorraine warren um but but they would be like over here we'll get you an exorcism right we really we, we know i didn't know that that they were into demon possession. I didn't know that they were into exorcisms. Yeah, so so they would get you a, a Catholic priest, but they would be from you know Mexico or Uganda. Or- <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a a black market of of it exorcists. It was, um, and so then people began going to the Pentecostals um, and to the Evangelicals, and sort of deliverance ministry took off. And then the Catholic Church saw that, and they said, "Well, gosh, we need to kind of loosen up a little bit and start doing exorcism ourselves." And meanwhile, in the rest of the world, there was never this concern that Christianity was was superstitious. So in South America and in Asia and in Africa, um, you know, spirit possession and exorcism are a fairly normal part of the religion. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. Jesus is casting out demons uh, uh, everywhere. I have occasionally, you know, I occasionally get emails from people who want me to help them with a demon. And really, and I, I do. <laughs> and I, I just don't answer them because I don't want to be liable if something happens. I don't understand the situation from an email, and I just never want to be in a place where somebody hurts themselves or somebody else, and it, it, you know something that I said. So I just it's, it's sort of first do no harm. I just don't answer them. Uh, but yeah, that makes sense. I, I do occasionally get things that seem like sort of secular uh, uh, demons. So one woman said, you know, I was taking a class on holistic health, and we were swinging a pendulum over herbs to figure out which herbs to take, and I think something got in me and now I'm, you know, I'm mad at my children and I want to like hit my children (laughs) or something. Oh dear. And and yeah. And she didn't use the word demon. And there are kind of new age exorcists who talk about, you know, vibrations and we can, we can banish these things using Mm. 
positive thinking or energy or something like this. So that's something that I think there's almost no scholarship on, but there definitely is a culture of kind of new age exorcism as as well. That's fascinating. Yeah. So I had several really terrifying experiences. And so, you know, I, I would see people, you know, when in these sessions, people, the possessee, the possessed, they're face would change they would start to speak with a different voice not not in a different language but with a very different voice they would and 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 nothing that struck me you know in retrospect as supernatural but definitely as an unselfconscious role-playing is what it seems like to me after the fact there's one situation though that did really frighten me and that was with a friend in college who just started out of the blue, quote-unquote, manifesting different voices, personalities. She would become violent. And and so my a minister in the area did an exorcism, and I was there, and I had bruises and scratches all over me. From, and, and, and it was terrifying. And now in retrospect, now, now that I'm more skeptical, I'm like, was I partaking in something abusive years ago? And was this a horrible, horrible, horrible case of us misunderstanding what was actually going on, and therefore causing enormous harm but she would come like come out of these dazes and then be herself and then she would like be sucked back down and then this other you know weird personality would emerge and that was when you when i totally believed this she also tried to seduce me but i'm gay and so that didn't work all of and it's like she was playing all of the stereotypical roles of a demon possessed woman and i didn't I don't know how much of this I'm going to include in the show, by the way. I, I don't know how much of this I'm going to edit out. But when you believe in it wholeheartedly and then you see something like that, it is just terrifying. <laughs> it's it's horrifying. And it feels like absolute confirmation that the devil exists. And now I'm more just like what I said, a hopeful materialist. But that really terrified me. And ever since, I've just been fascinated by it. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, something that really important that comes out in those stories is even if you are able to find explanations of these things that do not require you to believe in demons or or spirits, there is still a kind of awe-inspiring uh, yes. that's kind of what the human mind can do. <clears throat> yes. Um, that, that we do have the, and it is disturbing to think, even without demons, that we kind of have that ability within ourselves to kind of manifest this completely alternate set of, of behavior and, and personality. You know, one of the things that, uh, one of the quotes that I absolutely love is one of my favorite quotes. It's from the last Harry Potter book, and it's when, you know, spoiler after Dumbledore is dead and then after Harry is uh, killed by Voldemort uh, and Harry is sitting in King's Cross Station and he's with Dumbledore and they have this final conversation and Harry turns to him and asks, is this all in my head? And Dumbledore says, of course it's all in your head, Harry. Why on earth, why on earth does that mean it isn't real? And so, and, and I think that was like J.K. Rowling's parting wisdom to us. Like we've just experienced this whole adventure in the Harry Potter books, but just because it all happened in our head doesn't mean it isn't real. And, and so what I often find myself thinking about is that 
in a way, demons are real as a human construct and that we really are experiencing something that is terrifying, that is overwhelming. I experienced something terrifying and overwhelming. And just because it was all in my head doesn't mean it wasn't real. And it had real repercussions in real life. But just because just because it was a figment of imagination or a collective hallucinate or whatever you want to call it, that doesn't mean it wasn't real. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I think as as a metaphor, I think demons are a really great way of talking about things that we don't kind of fully understand. I mean, yeah. it's, it's somewhat akin to saying, you know, alcoholism is a disease. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's it's not really like a disease. It's You mm. can't spread it the way you can spread a cold or something, but it, it, it helps to frame it in that way. It, it kind of gives us a handle to kind of tackle the problem a little bit better. Um, and, and so I think I think you're right. I think demons are very are, are useful to think with. Uh, yes, about a lot of uh, uh, things that are that are difficult to to grasp. Um, so when you hear something like what I just described in college, what you as someone who studies the subject, what sort of thing do you want to ask of a situation like that? Like, what questions do you have when you hear about stories like this? Well, you know, I, ideally, I would want to know you know about this person's life and upbringing before they manifested these particular. Yeah. behaviors, right? And I would probably want to know a lot more than you could find from, say, a college transcript or things like this, but sort of, yeah. you know, where, where did you get the, where did you get your ideas about sexuality? Right? Yes. That demons would try to seduce people. Or yes. Demons, you know, do, do these different things. And there are certainly some cases where it seems like when you are possessed, this is your time to kind of, uh, you know, it's like a hall pass. You can finally do all those things. <laughs> <laughs> you're never allowed to do um this yes. is why the peoples of ladun is so interesting because these are nuns these are women who were asked more than anyone else to kind of control their lifestyles and now it's the total opposite right they can just do whatever they want they can tell the bishop to go fuck himself or whatever and they don't get in trouble because it's the it's the demon uh, uh doing it so I, I will be interested to see if there was any evidence that that's what was happening here, if I could kind of do a deep dive into somebody's uh, profile who had something like that happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're just saying about, you know, those nuns can do whatever they want because of the demons, That that's kind of what it's like living in a super new agey town that believes in astrology. If I have a really bad day, they're like, oh, you know, Mercury is just in retrograde. It isn't your fault. Yes. That thing that you fucked up at work, it's fine. <laughs> it wasn't your fault. It was the planet. I'm like, yes, <laughs> I love this. That's actually how... That is a real, those are, that is a real conversation that I've had several times. Like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That was a terrible mistake I made at work. Oh, don't worry about it. It, it, it was Mercury in retrograde. It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because that's the sort of thing that, that atheists would say, well, this is an example of kind of the hypocrisy of religious superstition. I think one thing that we overlook is this, this is a kind of polite way of letting people kind of save face or being forgiving of behavior that really probably shouldn't be tolerated. You know? Exactly. Well, you did tell the bishop to go fuck himself, but you had a demon, so it's okay. We're just going to move on. <laughs> right. There is a kind of mercy in, in these weird ideas. Yeah, it's fascinating. Before we finish up here, uh, where can people find you if they want to get in touch? Um, the, the, well, if, if you're having problems with demons, don't get in touch with me. Cause as I said, I won't, <laughs> won't be much help. Uh, <laughs> we but, can, uh, you can study them. You can, yes, you can study them. Yes. Um, I'll so send you, can, you any of my listeners who are, who are demon possessed. I get, I do get emails from, from cult people, from people who, who are in cults. I can forward you those emails too. 
Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, they're fascinating. Anyway, go on. Yeah, so the the best way is just to Google me, Joseph Laycock. Uh, my website should come up at the top, and there's a link there to, to books. All my books make a great um, holiday present. Yes, they do. <laughs> or if you want to read the book, you don't want to spend money yourself, just ask your local library to buy a copy, and then you can you can see if you like it and leave it there for, for somebody else. Yeah, and so you edited the Encyclopedia of Spirit Possession. Is that what it's that's called? That's right. That's right. And that's from ABC Clio, and um, that's uh, as obviously it's it's got contributions from many different scholars around the world. But it's sort of trying to have different articles looking at all the different beliefs and practices related to, to spirit possession from from different cultures. Yeah, and um, also Dangerous Games. I highly recommend it. That was actually I so I read that in January of of this year. Well, it'll be 2019 when the show comes out. Read it in January of last year. It was actually one of my favorite books of the year. I really, really, really enjoyed that book. So highly recommend. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I loved that book. I thought it was great. I ref- I actually reference it all the time in a lot of my shows. But yeah, it. I love that book. I highly recommend it. Um, all right. Well, is there anything else you want to plug or say before we banish you from the podcast? I will uh, give you the uh, the contact information for Brian Lavac. He has a book out called uh, Europe's Inner Demons, I think. That would be great. Yeah. Um, Michael Cuneo has a book called American Exorcism. And Sean McLeod has a book called American Possessions, if you guys are, are interested in critical work on, on exorcism. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you, Joseph Laycock, for coming back onto the show. This has been a lot of fun. Always a pleasure. All right. Well, the music is by the Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify. I need to thank my team, Carson Green, Justin Kayla Bryant, for taking care of all the social media bullshit for me so I don't have to look at it and can focus on on my work. Also, this show takes about 10 hours each week to produce. I am editing, booking, recording, uh, all of that stuff, making sure I can get you fascinating conversations every week. And that takes a lot of time and work. And I will keep doing it until I die, maybe. I I won't go that far, but I will keep doing it. And if you would like to support my work, please consider uh, giving on Patreon for $5 a month or $1 a month. You will get an additional podcast every week called The House of Heretics, in which Justin and I have very unedited, probably unsuitable for the public conversations about everything from faith and doubt and sexuality and all sorts of stuff. So if you want a separate podcast and if you want to make sure that I can continue to bring you interesting conversations, uh, then please consider giving. And as usual, thanks for listening. Thank you.